I just figured then you could just leave. I heard you're leaving, so I'm like, well, let's just get started early. Get out of here. Um, all right, we got two more Wednesday nights. I said it feels a little bit like the last two weeks of school where people are like, yeah, I mean, I guess, whatever. So gold stars for all of you that are here. Um, we're going to finish chapter six tonight, and then next week uh, we're going to try something new. We're going to go through the, uh, the panel discussion questions, or not panel discussion questions, uh, the questions that have been submitted. I uh, would love some more questions to be submitted. So if you're sitting on a question, I would love uh, for you to submit that into the box or into my inbox. Or if you are at home watching this, uh, you can certainly email me uh, any questions that you'd like to address next week. It can be about Ephesians. They can be about Judges. Uh, they can be about Ruth. Uh, they could just be about generally anything. So encourage you to ask some of those questions that maybe you've been sitting on. They will remain anonymous. So if you do email me, I'm not going to out you, so you don't have to like create some fake email in order to send an anonymous question. So no worries about that. All right, let's open with prayer, and then we'll get into Paul's conclusion of this um, letter. Lord God, we come to you tonight and we thank you for this wonderful day that you have blessed us with and seems like the final arrival of spring and so we are grateful for that and we cherish the days that we have here on this earth with each other and we thank you for all the good things that you do bless us with. Be with us tonight as we conclude this letter to the Ephesians and open Open up this passage to us in a way that causes us to draw closer to each other and to draw closer to you. And just be with us tonight in our discussion groups and in the time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is next week we are going to not uh, go into our general discussion groups. Uh, what I've done for most of the summer classes that I have led we'll do like kind of mini breakout groups. And so you're going to want to sit by someone or uh, some ones that you want to actually have a conversation with. Um, so choose wisely who you sit by next week. I will remind you and I will give you the tip. If you say, might need to get a drink, Probably a good thing to do as well. So, um, I do not know. I believe the summer class is going to be on care. Um, that'll start the Wednesday after Memorial Day. Uh, so Amy is going to be facilitating that. So here we go. Finally. Finally. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Uh, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that, you may all, so that you also may know who, how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. Amen and amen. Whew. Always feels good to get to the end of a book, a letter. Um, so I have to admit, as I was preparing for this, I was less than enthused uh, about this passage until this morning. And I came around uh, with a new excitement and fervor uh, because of this reminder how we so often ex- extract portions of Scripture out of their context, and by doing so, we really do them a great disservice. We do them a dis- meaning the verses, we do them a disservice, and we do ourselves a disservice, because all of these things are so culturally located within the letter and within the context that when we take them out, we rob them of their true meaning. So if you could think back to the very first week when we talked uh, about Ephesians, what is one of the main themes that we've been talking about over and over and over and over and over? The body? What about the body? Yes, unity. Unity in the body. And so as we think about this passage, if we don't have that at the forefront of our mind, we miss out on what Paul is trying to communicate to the Ephesian church and to us, that everything is about the unity of the body. And so as we talk about these things, Paul is giving us a warning of what may happen or what is going to happen and how we can defend against that warning within the body. And so it was just, I don't know why, but it was just like this slight shift in my thinking this morning, and I was like, aha, that makes sense. So right away, uh, uh, he gives us this concluding uh, statement, or this concluding word of finally, and he gives this charge to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's interesting because we had our first Detroit meeting, 
for the Detroit mission trip that's happening in July. And one of the things that we had to define right away was how do we define strength? How do we define strength from a worldly perspective? And then how do we define strength from a biblical perspective? And so we'd broken up into partners or uh, triplets. And so we looked up all these different verses about strength. And so often when we think about strength, we have a worldly point of view about what strength is. Which if you could think of a, a word that corresponds with strength in a worldly perspective, what would it be? Power or muscle, yes. A physical thing. And yet, when we think about strength in this, if you go, if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, okay, this strength that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So Paul is, in some ways, he's bookending this concept of strength and the strength of God uh, on both sides of this letter. And so we are to uh, gather our strength, the same strength that raised Christ from the dead. We are to tap into that strength as we think about what we are doing and what we will be facing. And oftentimes, I don't think we fully understand that. I don't think we fully understand the amount of power that we have through the Holy Spirit. And so we diminish our actions. And when Paul talks about speaking boldly in 19, if we believed that we had the power of Jesus Christ that raised him from the dead, to speak boldly would be a simple fact. But instead, we get it twisted around what strength is and how it functions within uh, the dynamic of God. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Again, so many of these concepts are concepts that we've already talked about. Paul is reminding us over and over of the same things that he has been talking about. When we say, put on... What do we immediately think of that we've already talked about? Christ. Yes. Remember? It was a searing image. Putting on the new sweatshirt. Taking off the old sweatshirt. I almost brought the old sweatshirt tonight. Then I was too busy making guacamole. <laughs> so it is the same imagery to put on Christ. So to say it a different way, he says, in case you missed it, to put on Christ is to put on the armor of God. See what he does there? Christ and the armor of God are synonymous. They mean the same thing. And he's repeating it because much like the sweatshirt illustration, we have a tendency to forget things. <laughs> right? So he says, put on literally this covering of oneself with Christ. Putting on a covering of oneself 
with the armor of God. What is the point? Why would we put on this armor? That you may be able to stand. The whole point of putting on the armor of God is to be able to stand or to maintain one's position. So, again, one of the challenges that we face throughout biblical interpretation and in so many other uh, ways, we our language gets infected by the culture that we live in, and then the way that we communicate can have a tendency to reduce words to meaninglessness. If a word means everything, it means nothing at the same time. For example, if I say, wow, those are awesome shoes. What does that even mean? The word awesome means awe-inspiring, but when we reduce it to like a pair of shoes, now it means nothing. It means everything and nothing at the same time. So as we talk about these words and these concepts today, we have to constantly remind ourselves of what we are trying to hear from Paul as he communicates to the Ephesians. So put on the armor of God. Why? So that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul introduced us to this cosmic concept way back in chapter 1, and it, we have to understand, for an ancient Near Eastern person, their view of the world was this three-layered view of the world. So there was the heavens, there was the earth, and they were very segregated, and then there was under the earth. And so to talk about the heavens, it means anything that exists above the earth, above the atmosphere that they could experience. So when he talks about these heavenly powers or these cosmic powers, it is something that is otherworldly. And he's talking about this concept of spiritual warfare. Now, again, since we've been talking about repeating themes, we'll talk about the pendulum that exists in this discussion around spiritual warfare. Because around spiritual warfare, we have this pendulum swing of the extreme that there is a demon under every rock and Satan is lurking around every corner. That's one extreme. And then the other extreme is 
that's a mythical thing that doesn't even exist. That Satan and demons, they don't even exist. That's just like fantasy and characters and all these things. And the reality is, again, somewhere in the middle. I mean, why was the church lady on SNL so brilliant? Well, first of all, it was Dana Carvey, so he's just brilliant. But then the church lady's response to anything that was ambiguous or uncertain was, could it be Satan? What well, could be? <laughs> and so, at times, again, we see Satan under every rock or rock song, depending on when you grew up. Or we see Satan only as Al Pacino in The Devil's Advocate. And as we think about how culture informs our view of God, how culture can inform or taint our theology, we have to step back and think, how has my view and understanding of Satan and demons been infiltrated or infected by culture, by artwork, by movies, by Carmen's amazing video? <laughs> Jeremiah's like, yep. I mean, could you narrow that down? Because he had a lot of good ones. We're not talking about the champion, which also depicts Satan in a fabulous way. But we create these characters of Satan and demons. I mean, think about the cartoons. Like, little red guy over here and little angel over here. And so then when we read a passage like this, and we close our eyes, we have a distinct image of what we seem to believe who Satan is or who these cosmic powers are or how spiritual forces and evil works. And so again, it can mean everything and nothing at the same time. Yeah, this we certainly have been infected by modernity and, and as we discuss, you know, Everything used to be a cause of demons. And, and we can again acknowledge that, that many, many, far too many people have been abused by inappropriate demonology to say, well, this person has a demon. And so we try to cast this demon out of this person that actually has a mental health problem. And so we have railroaded mental health issues into demonology to the detriment of people, literally, rather than saying, okay, what if it was both and? What if... There potentially is some demonic influence, and there needs to be some psychological intervention to help people with these things. Growing up in high school, I'll never forget, we had one uh, Wednesday night, our youth pastor played. Dawson McAllister used to have this radio call-in show, and uh, we, we got to listen to this audio 
Tanya is smiling. Are you familiar with the audio I'm going to talk about? And this gal calls in. And she's suffering from a demon possession. You want to freak out some high school and junior high kids? Let them listen to that and then say, Oh, looks like it's time. See you next week. And then you go home to your dark basement and try to sleep. Not to mention the Alice in Chains that I've been listening to. That's a whole different conversation that I threw that CD away when I saw the things on my ceiling. Again, different conversation. But I became obsessed with reading about spiritual warfare and, and, and seeing everything in this like spiritual warfare situation. So then we were in Chicago and one of the, on this uh, college trip for a month and one of the things we have to go to this certain area. So we went to Wrigley and we meet this person. We invite them out for lunch. And I, I, I took notes of all of the different personalities that this person displayed in our conversation. And then I went home and I said to our group, not home, but to where we were standing, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that person was demon-possessed. And I was certain. And then I had this whole thing, and it was like, looking back now, I'm like, probably not. And so there is this important balance because we see Jesus casting out demons and healing people of demon possession. And, and if we go to undeveloped or developing parts of the world, spiritual warfare is a very real thing. It's a very overt thing. It just so happens in the U.S., it's a covert thing. And so, does demon possession happen? Absolutely. Is everything that we encounter that we can't understand or can't explain Satan and demon possession? No. So, again, there's something in the middle here. But what, again, informs our understanding of spiritual warfare? Because that is what Paul is talking about. He's saying, you, the Ephesian church, are engaged in spiritual battle. But it's not exactly battle in the sense that we think of battle. It's a wrestling match. For we do not wrestle. It doesn't say we do not fight. Notice, again, the language that Paul uses that we have interpreted and twisted for our own cultural understandings, this is a wrestling match. This is not a fight. This is an engagement because if we believe that Jesus Christ died and was raised again, the battle is over. And so now we're not battling, we're wrestling. And who is this wrestling match against? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against fellow human beings. Because again, what Paul is trying to get us to understand is when we have challenges in this body, 
the wrestling match isn't with each other. This spiritual grappling is not with each other. But the world wants to convince us we got to fight these culture wars. We got to fight against the enemy. And who's the enemy? Anyone we don't like. Except that's not what Paul says. Well, this person holds a different belief than I do in a different position. We got to fight them. No. No, we don't. Culture tells us that we need to fight them because culture is a bunch of junior high kids gathered around two people that are disagreeing. Fight! Punch him! Punch him! Yes! Well, you get in there and fight. I don't want to fight, but I'd like you to fight so I can video it. Paul says to the Ephesian church, this wrestling match is not between human beings. It is against these cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil. Because Paul acknowledges that Satan desires to break apart the body. Satan desires to create disunity within the body, faction, division, all of these things that we've talked about. And so Satan tries to plant things within the body and within us to to convince us that our fight is against each other, not against evil and the principalities of darkness. Because the reality exists that when we talk about spiritual warfare and this battle or this wrestling match, so often it takes place in our own minds, in our own hearts. It takes place in a world that no one can see. It takes place in a world that can't be addressed. And Satan does a wonderful job of convincing us that we try to keep it hidden and keep it locked in and keep it locked down. I mean, for how long have we talked about this, the importance of expressing mental health challenges that we're having, and Satan convinces us that we don't talk about those things. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just figure it out. And then we lay in bed at night and we wonder, is this even worth it? Is this person laying in the bed next to me, is this even worth sustaining the struggle that we're going through in our marriage? Is this life even worth living? And Satan erodes at the, the foundation of our understanding from the inside out. So the battle is not against each other. The battle is against the evil forces that have infiltrated us. 
We are not at war. So when we talk about putting on the armor of God, it is not to go to war. It is not to go to war. Jesus Christ said, I did not come with the sword. In the garden, Peter pulls out his sword, lops the guy's ear off, and Jesus says, what are you doing? So if we put on Christ, it's not to go to war. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Literally, put on Christ, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. (laughs) So, in case you missed it, stand, stand, stand. Is standing an advancement? Is standing a retreat? Standing is holding ground where we are at. And the Ephesian church is being bombarded in a world where they certainly are not even close to majority, and a world where their Savior has just been crucified, where their people are being persecuted and being killed, and he is encouraging them to hold your ground, your conviction, and your position around each other. This is not a battle cry to fight. This is a battle cry to stand. And how are we standing? We are standing with God and what God provides for us. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. It's kind of important to have a belt on if you are wearing the garments that they would have worn back in the day. If you want to gird up your loins, you need to have something to tie your loins up to. <laughs> I mean, like your, your skirt thing down here. You got to pull it up, tuck it into your belt. What is this belt? It is the gospel. It is the truth. having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, we have to understand Paul isn't coming up with this language himself. He's actually borrowing from Isaiah chapter 59, where this same imagery is being used of God. That's why it's called the armor of God, because Isaiah uses this breastplate of righteousness when talking about God. To cover oneself with righteousness. Now, again, for many of us, we think about righteousness like we think about perfection, meaning without blemish. But righteousness is about right living. Righteousness is about correct behavior. And this word family that has righteousness is the same word family that has justice. So covering ourselves with appropriate living. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Again, 
peace, shalom, the gospel of shalom, the gospel of rightness. If everything is right, then we don't have to go to war. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, again, this, this imagery of this shield is not, this is not Brad Pitt in Troy with like a small shield. This is like a big shield, a defensive shield. A shield where you would gather in a line and we would put our shields together and we would create a wall of armor. A shield like that Paul is describing does you no good if you're by yourself. So again, as we think about what Paul is doing in Ephesians, if we are all united together and we have all of our shields linked together, we all can withstand the barrage of the enemy. And as Satan attempts to attack various factions of us, we are united together in this particular wall of being shielded. And that is faith. That's what we just talked about, right? That's what we just talked about on Sunday. That faith is not a solo adventure. Faith is a community event. And Paul is using that same thing. Our shared faith together creates a protection from Satan attempting to break through and divide us. I mean, this is just such a beautiful picture of how we, as the body, embrace and put on this armor of God, put on Christ to go through this thing called life. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again, covering your, your head is an important thing. And if we are covered, our most vulnerable place, our melon, with salvation, then we're good. We are set. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now again, when we think sword, we think like Sir Lancelot. Shing. Shing. This is not one of those swords. This is a sword. No, no. Because in Revelation... Tattooed Jesus comes riding down with a flaming sword and a horse. That's what I want. <laughs> yes, it's a lightsaber. Thank you, Russ. Yes, what, what she said. This sword is for close hand-to-hand -hand combat, so if the enemy gets too close or penetrates, we can use the spirit and the word of God to buff it back. This is not an aggressive, offensive weapon that we take 
out and we just start carving people up. That's not what this is for. I mean, think about Jesus when he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He uses scripture to defend himself and to buffet Satan away from him. And the most important part of this whole thing that often gets overlooked, because again, when we're doing Sunday school stuff, we just cut off parts of Scripture that get confusing, and we're just like, this sounds good. This will make a great little flannel graph, and kids will really get it. Then they'll be running around, hitting each other with swords. Which is not the point! <laughs> Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel again what how do we understand prayer and how do we understand prayer in our lives? There's a great story about uh, Eugene Peterson and his family. His mom and dad had this cabin that, his, that he inherited up uh, in Montana. And they had this uh, guy visiting them, super spiritual guy that, that Eugene was so curious about. And Wynn Collier tells a story in Eugene Peterson's um, biography. And, and Eugene wanted to learn from this guy about how to pray. And so he says, Mom, can I go talk to, talk to our, our guest about how to pray? Yeah, go ahead. So he goes and man's in the hammock. And Mom, I think, I think he's sleeping. No, no, I'm sure. Just go over there. So Eugene goes over there and, and he, he says, uh, excuse me, um, could you teach me how to pray? And the man says, no. <laughs> no. Because it's not this like rote skill that gets developed. To pray at all times is the same thing as to pray without ceasing. To pray in all that we do, to have this constant conversation this give and take with God, this speaking to God and this listening to God. Tim loves to tell this story. Tim and I and my, our friend Steve were going to do this backcountry route. And so Steve in his whatever, he's like, well, yeah, we'll just take this quick little, quick little boot pack, which means like climbing a stepladder in snow when you wish your fingers we're 10 times longer than they are. And then we scurry across these rocks, and Steve says, you guys think, you guys want to stop and pray? I'm like, start praying? I've been praying this whole time! <laughs> oh, okay. But do you want to pray together now? <laughs> Prayer isn't something we sit down and we just like, Okay, I'm going to pray for five minutes. Okay, now I'm done praying. Check the box. Paul is saying, conversate with God in the Spirit 
at all times. Again, remember we were talking about being filled with the Spirit to have this life of constant conversation and listening to God at all times. It's just what we do. It's just who we are. If we are in Christ. And he does specify with prayer and supplication because supplication is the requesting of things from God. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication, praying for other, for all the saints, requesting prayer for all the saints and also for me. Has anyone ever asked you to pray for them or you've said, how can I pray for you? And then they say, this way, like, good idea. A week goes by, and then you see them, and you're like, oh, that's right. Mm. Mm-hmm. God, you heard those, right? Those things that I didn't say, that I was going to say, but I had planned to say it. Because going to God on behalf of one another is part of how this thing called the body works. It's part of this, this life of faith together. It's this strengthening of each other together. And I know it's, it's, at times, again, it, it seems like at nauseum, like fill out the card on the back as a, you could just say it with me, spot for prayer requests. The staff prays for them on throughout the week and we'd love to pray for you. And it, at times it seems so familiar that it's just like wah, 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 wah. And yet it is one of the most important things that Paul talks about. Praying for one another, bringing requests on behalf of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to God. Which means we also need to ask other people to pray for us. It's again this mutuality and this reciprocal relationship so that if we need something, then we say to someone else, could you bring this to God on my behalf? And I will bring things to God on your behalf. And it's this unification that takes place through this life of prayer. And there's not a problem with asking specifically. And we've talked about this before. Paul asks very specifically. He says, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now notice this could be interpreted two different ways. It's a double meaning. Paul needs boldness to open his mouth. Somebody on Sunday, they came up to me and they apologized. Or actually, it wasn't on Sunday, but they said, Eric, I need to apologize for something that happened on Sunday. And I was like, okay. They said, well, you know, when you were talking about the joy that comes through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and all these things, I really wanted to audibly say, Amen! But I didn't. And I'm sorry. That's what Paul is asking for, to boldly speak in moments where we want to shrink back. This request is to boldly proclaim, to 
have the power and the boldness to speak up. Something we've been talking about. How do we speak up into each other's lives? Praying for the boldness to not, well, I don't know. And then to speak with boldness. So it's this double meaning, to boldly open our mouths, and then when we get to open our mouths, we get to speak with boldness, to proclaim this mystery that is the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, in case you forgot, I'm still locked up, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then Paul concludes this letter by informing them of the person that's bringing it, Tychicus. Just a fun, there's no fun names like this anymore. <laughs> Tychicus. So he's sending his friend Tychicus, his beloved brother, faithful minister. And what is Tychicus bringing? I love this. And oh yeah, he's going to tell you everything else. <laughs> Paul's like, my hand's getting a little sore So I'm just going to sum this up, and when Tychicus shows up, he'll tell you the rest. (laughs) And why is he going? He's going that you may know how we are because it's important, because it's this, it's not, the Ephesian church is not this isolated church. It's part of the larger body of Christ, and Paul wants to unite all of those who are followers of Christ together that they, they may be encouraged in their hearts. And then he concludes with this signature, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible, with a love that cannot be penetrated or distorted or infected by the world or by the enemy. Such a beautiful conclusion. All right, you can go to your discussion groups. Come up with those questions. Men, I can tell the men are slacking. <laughs>